Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Always good to hear from you. If there's anything you think we should be covering on the pod, you can email me matt at times.ready. Coming up on today's episode, could you afford to die? We hear from families pushed to the brink of bankruptcy because of the costs involved with being terminally ill uh, and a campaign to allow people to claim their state pension early if they are, have been given a terminal diagnosis. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, we'll also hear from Jonathan Powell, uh, former Chief of Staff for Tony Blair. Uh, Keir Starmer's looking for a new Chief of Staff to help him prepare for government. So we'll hear from Jonathan Powell as well. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it's... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yeah, we might be talking about busking, but here's two people who never busk it. Everything they come out with has always been very carefully thought through. Morning, Danny Finkelstein <laughs> in the studio. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And good morning to David Aronovich. Good morning, David. Good morning. I, I once really wanted to strangle a busker in Dresden. <laughs> um, and the, and, and the reason was it's not the title a, a of your of really memoirs. plaintive, continuous <laughs> rendition because the hotel was not far from the uh, big church in the centre there of uh, Hallelujah, um, and Hallelujah is an absolute busker's staple. If you can't sing anything else, you can sing that for all kinds of very you know. The, 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 it's not very difficult to sing. The registers don't change very much, and I'm not normally and normally I'm sort of really kind of peaceable and placid about these things, as you can imagine. But I honestly, it's <laughs> everything my wife could do to restrain me from going up to him and say, "Would you just do something else or go away?" And then I thought, well, actually, this isn't my country and it isn't my right to do it. But <laughs> have you had any run-ins with buskers, Danny? No, I can't say that I have. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Good. Uh, we finally found the thing that Danny does have an anecdote about. <laughs> right, let's turn our attention to politics then. <laughs> Um, and obviously, a lot's been raked over with uh, the Deems of Harwi, and we wait to see what, what happens. Uh, this investigation is running. The thing I'm quite interested in sort of trying to tease out, Danny, is the calculation of if, when, and how to sack someone. And sometimes, you know, a Prime Minister will decide, well, this person is, is worth all the economic, uh, all the political damage, <laughs> and economic damage it might have turned out, given the Deems of Harwi's tax bill. Um but the calculation of, well, if I if I sack someone, they might cause trouble on the back benches. If I keep them, it's causing me damage. I don't want to look like somebody who dithers, but also I don't want to look like I'm 
not giving people a fair hearing? What is the calculation that goes on? So I think it's much more the latter, right? So one of the things that people don't notice when they're watching these scandals from the outside is that these people are all individuals who have a personal relationship with the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister doesn't want to be unfair to them. I saw that happen quite a lot with David Cameron, where, where somebody would get into trouble. They weren't necessarily politically worth anything, right? Uh, and the, the Prime Minister begun to suspect that maybe they had done what they were accused of doing. The person will always say, I've been in this situation myself, by the way, having this said to me, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. It's very difficult when, you're, when <laughs> you face somebody to know what to do about that. And personal relationships have got much, much more to do with it. So I think um, it's the idea, I don't want to be unfair to this person, I don't want to end their political career uh, for nothing. Um, and even though they can see because they are experienced people that the politics means, and I think in the Zim Zahawi's case it certainly will mean, that they won't survive it. You don't want to be the person that sort of said, I'm not prepared to hear your case out, I won't refer it to an independent arbitrator, um, you're not entitled to the normal processes that would take place in a business, um, you know, uh, so... so um, they, they then do, uh, and we can't use one of those normal processes, which would be suspension while your case is being looked at. Uh, so we're just going to um, to remove you, and that causes a resentment among that person and that person's friends. So I think an awful lot of this is is to do with personal relationships. The one thing that struck me, David, thinking about this was that we went through all this before Christmas with with Gavin Williamson and and uh, the revelations about him and his abusive texts he'd sent uh, people. Um, we were told that it was very dangerous to sack Gavin Williamson. He's going to be, you know, it's better to have him inside the tent than outside. I'm not sure of all the many problems that Richard Sinek's had over the last uh, couple of months. Gavin Williamson being on the back benches is one of them. Do these things are slightly overblown sometimes? Uh, or, well, to which people will say, yet. Um, uh, uh, but before before we do, uh, I just want to pick up on that last point of, of Dennis, uh, going right the way back to the uh, second sacking of Peter Mandelson by Tony Blair, um, of being a very good example of what can happen when uh, sacking becomes your kind of first go-to point. Um, uh, people might agree that the first sacking of Peter Mandelson was justified. That was the mortgage sacking. But the second sacking of Peter Mandelson was hugely resented by him and by his friends. I think indirectly led to Robert Harris writing an entire novel which uh, vilified Tony Blair in it. Um, uh, 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 the, the one I think it's called The Ghost Writer or The Ghost. Ghost. Uh, it's, and, called. it's called Ghost. Um, because Robert Harris was a, a, a friend of Peter Mandelson and really genuinely felt that he had been very, very bad dealt with, mostly by Alistair Campbell, who he blamed for having persuaded Blair that this was a problem that was not going to, that they just didn't need, so they were going to get rid of Peter Mandelson. So I think this illustrates Danny's point perfectly. I don't know whether Tony Blair then well, subsequently regretted uh, that sacking, but it was but after it, it was widely believed that the sacking was wrong. It was, yeah. This is something on which I've got an anecdote, unlike the busker. Um, <laughs> the, I was working for William Hague at that time, and I remember remember on the Tuesday night before Prime Minister's questions, I'd begun to look at what Peter Mandelson was supposed to have said and what he what had done and what he'd said on various TV programmes. And I realised in Prime Minister's questions, Tony Blair wouldn't have an answer if you asked him certain questions because it was unclear and William Hague could just push him on it. And I further realised that as a result of that, Tony Blair would try to get rid of Peter Mandelson before Prime Minister's questions in order to 
prevent an embarrassing Prime Minister's questions, which is exactly what happened. And then when William Hague um, got up to ask him questions, it turned out he had nothing to ask him anymore because Peter Mandelson had, had already been removed. But without any question, uh, once that had all been bottomed out, that sacking was not fair. Uh, and yeah. he would have been better off, Tony Blair, standing by Peter Mandelson at that point. And Though I do not think this will be the case with Nadim Zahawi, I must say, um, there, there is a feeling in politics, you, know, you have to have got rid of this person in the next uh, 24 hours, in, in the next three days, Nadim, Nadim Zahawi is not going to do any damage to the Conservative Party or the country in the next three days <laughs> that can't be undone relatively easily. So it is a bit better, it is better in my view um, that you take some time to have the process, even though I think all of us look at it and think it would be a surprising process that concluded this was acceptable. Yeah. It certainly doesn't look acceptable to me, um, but I'm much less. But I'm much less taken by this whole. You know, it must happen immediately, or it's completely indecisive. You know, and by the way, most of, most people won't remember the whole incident mm. within a year or two as well. So we can also overblow its political significance. I do I, think, I, in the end, it's very important that we that we haven't, you know, that, that that cabinet ministers are ethical. I don't think it will be acceptable if Nadim Zahawi has, for example, told the permanent secretary or the prime minister things that were not true and is then allowed to remain. We had that during well, the sort of thing during Boris Johnson's period in office. It's not acceptable, but I don't have a problem with taking three or four days to find that out. One more thing I want to add about uh, the Zahawi, Zahawi thing is it's very interesting to follow the correspondence between his lawyers and one of the people, uh, tax experts, who was trying to chase it down in July. Uh, because essentially what they said was, uh, you're at risk of libeling him, so don't kind of raise this and we deny it all, etc. Now, all these letters were happening in July. If you cross-reference them with the timescale within which Boris Johnson was going and Nadim Zahawi was in cars, various cars, going to Downing Street saying, what am I getting, Nigel, to Nigel Adams, etc., because he thought he was going to get a kind of preferment. They are more or less the same dates um, uh, 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 as it happens. And I think one of the most egregious elements of this is, uh, 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 is the way in which somebody was threatened with the possibility of libel action for essentially saying something that was true um, and uh, that was demonstrably true. And the second thing I say about this is, uh, like a lot of people, I'm doing my taxes incredibly late this week. And I have <laughs> agonised. I have agonised about whether or not a particular £1,500 payment fits into a tax year or not. I kind of really kind of gone into that. The idea that somebody mislays £3.7 million worth of tax is just... To most people in this country, is just staggering. Yeah. You just kind of. I, 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 I do I, wonder I actually whether the, the fact it is happening right now, when lots of people are doing their tax returns, yeah. will add to. It doesn't matter really in the grand Look, scheme of things, but in terms of the political so impact and the awareness I, of it, what I suspect will will happen is that the ethics advisor will conclude that one of these various things, like the libel accusation or not telling the truth to the prime minister or not telling the truth to the permanent secretary, will, will have broken the ministerial code, and will thus step round the question of whether or not the tax itself did um, in, and that's what I think will happen but for most people uh, you're quite right David this these kind of large sums which were clear seemed to me to be clearly the subject of what George Osborne described as aggressive tax uh, tax avoidance um, 
that that seems to me, um, you know, as though what most people regard the issue is, but it probably won't be the issue which the independent ethics advisor homes in on. Yeah. The other thing that is, well as writing, as well as writing the letters to become chancellor and then tell Boris Johnson to go, and writing the legal letters, turns out he spent last time writing his memoirs as well. So he was very busy, very busy boy <laughs> last year. Um, uh, this is a week I can't. If, if you can't remember three point five million pounds, <laughs> one wonders what will be in the memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> What's he remembered? <laughs> Yeah, recollections may differ. Uh, to quote the late <laughs> Joke of the day. Joke of the day. Uh, right, uh, let's move on. Still joined by Finkovich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Let's turn our attention now to the probation service, which is something that, David, you wrote last week, is something that we probably don't talk about nearly enough. A damning report out today shows that probation service errors allowed a man, Jordan McSweeney, who had a history of violence to stay free and go on to murder Zara Alina in London in June. He was considered a medium, not high risk, meaning that when he breached his licence, his return to prison wasn't treated urgently enough. That report out today. And then, David, you you covered another awful case in your, your column in The Times last week involving Damien Bendel. Yeah, Damien Bendel was the guy who killed four uh, people with a claw hammer. His, uh, his, his girlfriend, uh, her son, her daughter, and her daughter's friend who was on a sleepover. Um, uh, and the uh, this 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 next case is kind of very, terribly similar because it's about a risk assessment that goes wrong, um, uh, and the, when you look into it, you, you look at the various reports of the uh, probation service uh, inspector, who's an independent, doesn't work for the probation service, is set up to uh, inspect it independently. Essentially, what it is over the last couple of years is a series of warnings about how bad things are getting in parts of the country. Um, uh, for example, I mentioned the piece last week, the inspectorate reported um, this November that large swathes of the probation service in London were shockingly bad. Well, it was the probation service in London that was dealing with the McSweeney, uh, uh, with, with McSweeney. Uh, across the capital uh, in November, there were 500 vacant positions among probation staff, a large, high number of, of staff off sick. This, of course, is the service that was briefly semi-well, semi-privatized by Chris Grayling for five years, and then when the uh, when the, some of the major when the major companies involved went into administration in 2019, had to be bought back inside. Um, but what it is is a classic example of what you, what I would call a Cinderella service, which is a service that most people don't want to talk about, and we, most of us don't encounter very often which is suffering all the kind of chronic problems of long-term uh, underfunding, um, uh, quite possibly poor management as well, as you've seen this kind of re, uh, the way in which it's been restructured, et cetera. And then what you get is difficulties in recruitment, uh, low staff morale, high staff sickness, and so on. And it all gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you kind of, you feel after a while that at some point or other, with services like this, like and like drug rehabilitation services as well, somebody's got to step in and say, yeah, we know people don't like to think about these services a lot, but they do matter. And we need to try and bring them to the forefront of public consideration when we talk about how we fund and how we organise services. And your point about it being a Cinderella service, David, which we don't talk about, you're so right that, you know, clearly we've talked an awful lot in recent weeks about nurses, about train drivers, junior doctors, whatever it might be. These people, probation officers are, I mean, it varies, but it seems to be around £30,000 you get as a probation officer, making extraordinary judgments every day, trying to almost see into the minds of people that they don't particularly know and spend a huge amount of time with. 
Are you on the path to to going straight, if you like, or do you still pose a threat? And every day they have to make those those narrow judgments. Yeah. And when it goes I mean, wrong, they yeah, get these terrible cases. Very briefly, in the case of Bendel, for example, um, the conclusion of the review was that had a more experienced officer been handling Bendel's case, then probably a different assessment would have been made. So that gives you an example. That was in the that was in the review. Danny, probation is just a, it's just something no political apart from when Chris Grading privatised it, then unprivatised it. I can't remember the last time you had a, a political conversation about it. Yeah, no, I thought David's column was excellent on this. It it, it really is. Um, you know, an important area that the administration of justice we don't talk about enough. And one of the reasons I'm, you know, a bit resistant to uh, strikes in uh, pay strikes in other services is if we pay for those, we can't pay for this. You know, there are choices to be made. And I, I always, you know, when in, in Times editorial conference we have this discussion because the Times is in general in favour of keeping control of public spending. And I'm always very hot when we then propose spending more money on something. But we all have something that um, we think would benefit, you know, seriously from in increased expenditure. In my case, it's the administration of justice in all forms, the court system. I was actually you know, much, much more sympathetic to the criminal bar strike uh, than I am to the latest round of, of private strikes, not of, of public sector strikes, not because not, you know, I'm not sympathetic to anybody who's working very hard and isn't paid very much, but just because I thought that there we were seriously in danger of the system collapsing because mm. we weren't paying people enough to get anybody. Um, and uh, Well, we'll see if this makes any difference. I suppose that the trouble is, in the most cynical way, there's no votes in saying going to pour more money into probation services. Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, each in, each individual item in in any budget doesn't you know win or lose elections. But I think these kind of very emotive cases, which are yeah. pretty much straightforwardly down to these kind of some of these funding issues, they are pretty 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 directly electorally potent. Uh, but let's finally move on with a with a end on a slightly uh, lighter note. Um, George Santos. Uh, who I when I was in New York over over Christmas, I delighted in reading almost every day another George Santos story. So this is a Republican uh, uh, elected in New York uh, to Congress uh, to represent New York, and almost everything he's ever said turns out not to be true. He claims about where he worked, where he grew up, his his parents, his grandparents uh, have turned out not to be true. Over the weekend, he. Was he finally admitted to being a, a drag queen at some point? Um, uh, David, you you were quite taken by this story as well. I, I, I am very taken by this story, not least because I can't believe only America has Santoses, really. <laughs> and, 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 you know... Um, it, in in public life, there are people who kind of appear. You see, you, you quite often see them on the fringes of smaller parties uh, and so on. They become suddenly become candidates. I don't know for the Brexit party or something. Or something like that. And you uh, and they say they're one thing, and they turn out to be a completely di uh, a different thing. But they don't matter because they don't usually get into a mainstream parties because mainstream parties have some kind of uh, vetting system. And I suddenly wondered whether during the course of because uh, Dan is being closer to the political coalface than I have. Um, uh, 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 and I was wondering whether or not Jeffrey Archer was always regarded as being a, a character a bit like this. I haven't uh, quite come across this, but I, I have come across... Well, once I was asked by Watford Conservative Party whether I would be, you know, I would sort of be, in, be on the hustings, I would 
interview the various candidates. So there was a time when they got sort of centre-right journalists and all that to interview their candidates for selection meetings, and I did this. And they chose the candidate, and at the end of it, I thought, that guy is fine, but he's very boring that they chose, compared to the other people who were a little bit less experienced but much more interesting. And I was a bit disappointed they chose the most boring person. Anyway, over the next year, it turned out that various things happened in Watford. The editor of the local newspaper had white paints dropped all over his car. The the uh, the Liberal candidate had got massive daubed all over her door, some expletives and things like that. And if, when the police started to look into it, they found that the person guilty of it was the Conservative candidate that they selected, <laughs> uh, who, ter- who I thought was incredibly boring. It shows how much I knew. So that was the closest I've come personally to... to but there, you do occasionally come across people in politics whom you think to yourself, well, you're a, you are a fantasist, yes. Um, yeah, the, uh, the the George Santos list is amazing. He claims to have worked at Goldman Sachs and he hasn't to have degrees from two New York colleges, which appear not to be true. He's accused of faking his grandparents' Jewish ancestry, claiming they escaped from the Holocaust. So no, also not to be true. I, think, I was thinking about that. I think probably the closest that I could think of is Paul Nuttall, who was a guy who became <laughs> UKIP leader. And people started, again, because, you know, up until that point, it didn't really make any difference. And he'd got some things on his LinkedIn that he'd got a PhD and he hadn't. He'd played football for Tranmere Rovers and he hadn't. He claimed that he'd been at Hillsborough uh, and he hadn't. Uh, And when he, when asked, he was pressed on this. I mean, it was Sophie Reid on Sky News, pressed him all these things. In particular, why did you make up such a terrible thing that you'd you'd been at Hillsborough and you hadn't? Because he was from Liverpool. Uh, and he said uh, that it was all blown out of proportion. He said, it's not like I've been caught in a paedophile gang or anything. I've just been doing a lot of work, though. Yeah, I've just been embellishing my, I've just been embo- uh, embellishing my CV. I mean, Jeffrey Archer did used to, I think he, he, he once, uh, when applying for a job as a PE teacher, said he had an honours diploma from Berkeley when he did it. Turned out to be a correspondence course. And that, that, I, and that is a kind of quite a, a, a horribly common form of embellishment, i.e., uh, I a lie. Um, uh, <laughs> he also used to say about, he went to Wellington. Santos, didn't he? Yeah, well, something about Santos, which is really weird, as somebody, as somebody said in one of the American programs, when he said that he played volleyball at a high level and uh, injured both his knees playing for Baruch College, which he never went to, the person <laughs> said, Look, if you're going to lie about this, why volleyball? <laughs> if you're not going to embellish yourself, why do you choose volleyball? Um, I mean, I had no idea that knees were a problem in volleyball. But McCormick certainly he didn't have operations on his In other words, absolutely nothing he says is true. Amazing, isn't it? Daddy was coming. As Daddy came in this morning, he was saying his knees were hurting because he was playing volleyball last night. So uh, <laughs> there is definitely there is definitely something in that. Uh, gents, lovely to see you both. Daniel Finkstein and David Iwanovich there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Right, now let's hear from Jonathan Powell. Uh, Henry Zeffman revealed in The Times this week that Keir Starmer is looking for a new chief of staff to help him prepare for government. So in our regular feature on the radio called Lifting the Lid, we lifted the lid on being a chief of staff. So you'd been a civil servant before you then uh, became Tony Blair's chief of staff uh, in the, in opposition. How big a leap was that that for you going from being sort of impartial civil servant to being right at the you know the core team trying to prepare Labour for government? It, it was quite a big leap um, coming from the Foreign Office where I worked as a, a diplomat. I was in the embassy in Washington. 
uh, from there into the intricacies of Labour Party politics was certainly a baptism by fire. Um, so it, it's a difficult transition to make. I had some experience of politics because I spent my four years in Washington following Bill Clinton around when he ran for president uh, and thereafter. So I've been sort of into American politics, but certainly not into Labour Party politics. Uh, and I was the one person who came in who had got experience of government because, of course, Labour had been out of power for a very long time, then 18 years. Uh, and so trying to work out how to go into government, how to be prepared for it, was a function. I think Tony wanted someone who demonstrated he was serious about going into government rather than traditionally you'd have just taken a Labour Party apparatchik to do the job. He wanted to show this time they were serious about getting into government and were doing serious things to prepare for it. So was that slightly rethinking what the, the job of Chief of Staff was? I mean, it, it feels a bit like the role of Chief of Staff is in the eye of the beholder or even the holder of the role. The, you, you were sort of one step removed slightly from the, the, the politics and your, 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 uh, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson doing the sort of the electioneering, the campaigning. Your role was to think, well, once you've done that and it's successful in the election, how are we going to make this happen? It's quite an important role. Yeah, it's the old saying about you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. So you've got to make the transition from one to the other. Uh, so I wasn't uh, integral to any of the campaigning uh, of the election. I was focusing on what we would do if we won and also writing speeches for the campaign and that sort of thing. So I think it is important that people who've been in opposition a long time have someone who knows something about government and can help them prepare, not least because politicians are very superstitious uh, <laughs> about um, preparing too early, of measuring the curtains, looking like they're too ready to go into government. So Tony, for example, really wouldn't think about what policies we'd adopt about a 100-day plan or anything like that. So David Miliband, who is our director of policy, and I sat down and drew up a short 100-day plan, came up with the various things we do day by day, uh, what the key appointments would be and all the rest of it. Tony only really started to look at those papers um, seriously on the day of the election itself. Before that, he really didn't want to think about it. And I remember Bill Clinton was the same. He had a whole transition plan drawn up during the uh, election campaign. And when he got elected, he threw that away and started again because he hadn't paid any attention uh, to what had been done before. It's really interesting that. And I interviewed um, Tony Blair a few years ago about exactly that, about that period and his his absolute obsession with sort of war on complacency, just focusing on getting to election day rather than, you know, like you said, wanting to look like you're being presumptuous or, or measuring the curtains. And in fact, I asked him, if he felt when the moment came, he was ready to run the country. Let's take a listen. You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition. In that sense, you're, you're never ready. Um, we were ready in one way, which was very, very important. Although lots of policy was still to be decided, and that's natural. You know, an opposition party can't be expected to have all its policies worked out. And in fact, it's not even a good idea that, that it does. But we were ready in the sense that we were heavily oriented. In other words, we knew what type of government we wanted to be. We had certain clear principles established. So we, weren't, we didn't come in, you know, without a compass. But we did come in without having obviously yet done that journey and known what obstacles there are in the way. And, you know, the one thing you realise the moment you come in to government is that campaigning to be the government is completely different from governing as the government. And, you know, there is nothing really that prepares you quite for that if you haven't been in that position before. Jonathan, what's really interesting about this, people might be thinking, 
But isn't the whole point of being opposition, having all of your policies ready to go, and then you go into government and implement them? Um, yes, but you have them at a very high level of generality, and you do not have the machinery, a huge civil service machinery, to look at what all the problems are and trying to implement them. And civil servants are very good at pointing out what the problems are uh, of the various policies because they've seen them all before. Most policies have already... <laughs> Opposition, you don't have that. So you've got schematic policies. You've got, as Tony said, in that a sense of direction. And then you need the civil servants to help you flesh those out. And of course, they too develop first day plans. When you come in through that front door, you walk along the corridor into the cabinet room and the cabinet secretary sees the um, uh, new prime minister, talks about the nuclear codes and then works, gives him a whole series of briefs the civil service have drawn up on the basis of uh, the manifesto, but also the basis of conversations I or people like me have had with the civil servants before government. And what's important to remember is that if you're going to do radical stuff, the time to do it is when you come in. That's when you have the political capital. That's when it's easier to make changes. You know, we change Prime Minister's questions from twice a week for 15 minutes to once a week for half an hour. If we tried to do that any other time in those first couple of weeks in government, we'd never been able to get it through. But those sort of changes, either changes of structure, changes of process, and big changes of policy, you want to make as early as you can while you're still strong politically. And there is a, a sort of a, a formal um, po uh, policies now system where oppositions can start speaking to uh, the civil service, so that so that you can say, "Well, this is what we want to do," and how do you think this might actually uh, pan out? What what's the process for that? How did you? Who was it that you were speaking to? How many people were you speaking to? How sort of far across Whitehall does that does that process spread? Well, it's a formal process that's authorised by the Prime Minister of the day to allow the civil service to engage uh, with the opposition. It usually happens sort of six months out from, from an election because you don't, in the old days, when you didn't know when the election was going to be, you had a Parliament Act, uh, you had, um, uh, uh, it was less, until you got really close to the election, that wasn't clear. But most uh, Prime Ministers are pretty sensible about that. John Major was certainly pretty sensible about it. I, of course, already had a network of contacts in uh in Whitehall, not least because my, my eldest brother had worked in number 10 himself for eight years from Sir Thatcher. So I knew a lot of the people uh, in Downing Street and elsewhere. So I was talking formally to Robin Butler, the cabinet secretary, to Alex Allen, who was the principal private secretary in Downing Street, who, for example, took me around the building to show me where all the flats were and which flat could Tony live in. And then we had to work out what the offices are, because, again, you wouldn't believe it, but where people sit often becomes the biggest um, issue of contention. Uh, when you go into government, everyone wants to sit as close as possible to the prime minister. And unless you've already got a plan when you come in and it's settled and no one can argue about it, uh, well, they're all sort of in the euphoria of victory. Uh, you'll find it incredibly difficult to work out later. So all those kind of things have to be discussed. The, the prosaic, like where you sit, the, the uh, policy issues, like are you going to make the Bank of England independent? When are you going to do it? What, when are you going to do the Queen's speech? The Queen's speech had to be, at least in those days, printed on vellum. So it had to, you had to have it ready, um, sort of literally five days after you've been elected. So you come in, you've had no sleep after the election campaign, you've flown down from Tony's constituency, you're really exhausted, and you have to go straight away into appointing the cabinet, drawing up the Queen's speech and all these crucial steps. Most other countries don't have this incredibly quick transition. Normally, it's sort of in the US, it's three months, and you've got plenty of time to repair. With us, you're thrown into it without any sleep, and have to move fast. So it's always sensible to have prepared beforehand. 
uh, some of the um, names uh, in the uh, in the mix for the the new chief of staff job for for uh, Keir Starmer. Ollie Robbins, who was Theresa May's chief Brexit negotiator, is one mentioned, although uh, uh, he's not actually thought to have been in contact with them. Uh, Tom Scholar for was running the Treasury until he was sat by uh, Liz Truss as, as another one. You you don't fancy you don't fancy chucking you. You're still a young man, Jonathan. You could have another go. I'm not a young man, and I think it's always a mistake to go back to the scenes of your previous disasters. So, no, I think I'd be a very unsuitable person. But the Tom is a wonderful guy. He already was chief of staff, too. And when Gordon Brown came in, he wanted to be, because I created the job of chief of staff. It didn't exist before. Uh, we imported it, and it's survived ever since. But uh, Gordon wanted to do it differently from Tony Blair, not surprisingly. And so he put Tom Scholar, a civil servant, in as chief of staff, who did an excellent job, but from a civil service point of view. Uh, I'd be very surprised if Tom, as a very, very senior civil servant, wanted to go back into doing that. Um, and if he did, it would sort of, might be seen as validating Liz Truss's outrageous sacking of him as uh, uh, as permanent secretary of the, the Treasury, whereas, in fact, he's completely independent politically. So I don't think he'd be suitable. Well, Ollie Robbins also worked for me in number 10 as the principal private secretary to Tony Blair. So he has some background in that. I don't think Ollie would be likely candidate either. So I think they're looking for someone. Um, and I think it is sensible. What they're doing is demonstrating they're serious about going into government, serious about preparing, and that there needs to be that function alongside the function of campaigning. So I think that's a, a wise thing to do, and I'm sure they'll find someone very good to do it. Um, and just comparing where Labour are now to where you were year, 18 months out from uh, the general election, how would you sort of mark Keir Starmer's progress so far out of 10 as to how far along the road he is in being ready for government after a long period in opposition? Um, well, only as an outsider can I mark. Yeah. Uh, looking at it as an outsider, I think um, he's had a much harder battle. He's had to do what Neil Kinnock did uh, and what Tony Blair did. So he's had to reform the Labour Party to bring it back from the brink of madness uh, and make it a, a rational, uh, genuine, competitive force in British politics. And he's done a remarkable job at that. Now he's facing this slightly more difficult job of actually convincing the public, not just that they can't stand the Tories anymore, but that actually they do uh, want Labour, trust Labour. Uh, and he's doing his very best to reassure, re reassure them that he's indeed a patriotic party, that is indeed a party that's sensible economically, uh, making those sensible decisions. Much done, much more to do, uh, as someone uh, once said. I think it was the uh, the, uh, the verdict on that. Jonathan Powell there. Right, up next, The Cost of Dime. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing. On Times Radio. Can you afford to die? That's the slightly alarming question we're going to try and answer today. Research from the End of Life charity, Marie Curie, has found that one in four people of working age, that's between 20 and 64, spend the last year of their life in poverty. For those people and their families, the agony of medical treatment, then grief, is then compounded by financial worries. So during this half hour, we are going to speak to some people who have been in exactly this situation, pushed to bankruptcy after a loved one was diagnosed with a terminal illness. First, let's speak to Mark Jackson from uh, Marie Curie. Morning, Mark. Good morning. Just sketch out for us how, how many people we're talking about who find themselves in this situation, actually through no fault of their own, suddenly, you know, feel a bit iffy, go to the GP, you know, you end up on that sort of conveyor belt and then you get the news that you're terminally ill. How many people are we talking about then find themselves not just with health problems, but financial problems as well? Yeah, thank you, uh, Matt. It's uh, Our research has shown it's around 90,000 people in the UK every year are dying in poverty. That's spending the last year of their lives in poverty. And as you mentioned, it's actually people in working age who are most at risk. One in four people who dies in working age spends the last year of their lives in poverty. And you can imagine terminal Ill people are at a particularly high risk of falling into poverty. You face all sorts of new and higher costs like increased energy bills, the cost of travel to appointments, medication and more. And often those costs are hitting just at the point you've had to give up work and your income has fallen. And the benefits system, I'm afraid, is simply not providing the help that terminally ill people need. And some of the stories we've heard, as, as you've mentioned, are absolutely gut-wrenching. You know, terminally ill parents struggling to feed their children, people being evicted from their homes while undergoing chemotherapy because they can't make rent. And as I say, those stories are not isolated incidents. 90,000 people die in poverty every year in the UK and the cost of living crisis I'm afraid is, is driving more families into this situation every day. And so what would you like to see happen? What The solution that you're putting forward is, is to do with the state pension? That's right, yeah. I mean, the, the burning injustice here is that despite having paid into the system all of their working lives, sometimes for 20, 30 years at the point they get diagnosed, terminally ill people in working age cannot access their state pension and the vital financial support that would bring in simply because they'll die before they're old enough to claim. And sometimes people are dying in really desperate circumstances, just a few short years or even a few short months before they could have claimed their state pension. So we believe the compassionate thing to do, the right thing to do, would be to allow dying people, terminally ill people, to claim their state pension. That would lift, according to our numbers, more than 8,000 people a year out of poverty at the end of life. And it would be a pretty minimal cost for the government, just an additional 0.1% of the annual state pension bill and that's why you know, we are calling on the government to meet with us to discuss this more than 20,000 people have signed an open letter that Marie Curie has put to the Department for Work and Pensions today asking for them to meet with us and end this injustice. And actually according to the story in the Sun today saying the government's looking at raising the state pension age to 68 mm -hmm. so potentially even more people in this uh, situation who could benefit from the thing you're talking about. 
Absolutely, yes. You know, the, the higher the state pension age goes, then the more risk there is going to be of people becoming terminally ill at 66, 67, you know, coming on for 68, uh, not being old enough to claim their state pension, having to rely on the working age benefit system if they become terminally ill and unable to work. And as I say, our, our research has shown that uh, the working age benefit system, I'm afraid, is simply not fit for purpose when you consider the additional costs that being terminally ill brings. Mark, really good to speak to you. Thank you for that. It's Mark Jackson there from Maui Cures. Well, let's hear then from exactly some of the people Mark is talking about, people who found themselves unable to cope with the cost of dying. I've been speaking to Audrey Buckham, and Audrey's husband, Eddie, used to work in a factory making parts for Nissan. But in January 2020, he fell ill. Eventually, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And from uh, December, he was unable to work, going for numerous chemotherapy appointments each week. He's getting worse. His feet were swelling up. His tummy was swelling up. He was just terrible. And, you know, obviously that affected all of us in the house because it was terrible to see him in that way. So with Eddie out of work and Audrey on an NHS worker salary, she found herself unable to meet bill payments, which began to rise as Eddie's condition worsened. Interest rates and energy costs went up, the cost of living crisis we've all, we all uh, know about. They went from having two wages in the house to when Audrey stopped working as well, to having to rely on benefits. And by May 2022, the doctors said there was nothing more that they could do for Eddie. And with him skeletal and able to eat and his body swollen, Audrey had to sit down and explain to him that she had to declare herself bankrupt. Understandably, this was heartbreaking for them both. Eddie passed away in a hospice aged 64 in June last year on Father's Day. I spoke to Audrey yesterday. It was hard. It was really hard. A month before he died, I, ha I had to declare myself bankrupt because that was the only way we could survive. Obviously, you know, you, you don't have a lot of money and it's just on benefits, so you're living on credit cards to try and help you. And then I had to try and save up the £628 to go bankrupt. Um, my, hu my husband had two credit cards, and one of them was really good, and they cancelled it straight away when we told them what was happening, but the other one wouldn't. They said, you know, they had to wait until if, if he died, more or less. So to survive, I had to, I had to go bankrupt, because everything virtually was in my name. And and the point, anyone who's had someone at home is particularly having uh, yeah. chemo, but lots of other illness as well, you need to have the heating on. Yeah. You need to make sure you're buying, well, yes. you know, fresh fruit and veg because you want to well, try yes. and build them up. And all. So there's sort of added costs at a time when you've, yes, your income's yes. been cut. I mean, we had to make sure that he had aids for the house, uh, you know, to help him to get in and out of the bath and things. So, I mean, that's not cheap. And then, obviously, like you say, you have to, you've got to try and think of things to try and help him to eat. So you're getting fresh vegetables and things and you're cooking from scratch and things. We couldn't afford takeaways and stuff like that. But you try to you try to create memories, you know. So we had a holiday, Easter weekend, we went to a caravan at Berwick, it was a haven holiday, to try and make memories for him. But you couldn't do that all the time because we didn't have a lot of money, so you tried to make the most of that. And so what difference... And, and when you're terminally ill, you shouldn't have to worry about money, I don't think. And I suppose that's the thing, because you've got so much you're worrying about. You're, try you're trying to look after your loved yeah. one. He's trying to, you know, presumably worrying about yeah. you and the financial yes. impact of what's being left. So what yes. what difference would it have you made to you, this idea of if he'd been able to draw down, because he was only 64 when he died, so 
if he had been able to draw down his state pension, what difference would that have made to you? Yes. Well, it would have made quite a bit of difference because at least that wouldn't be means tested. So you would get what he's worked for all his life. And how much had you thought about this before? Because we're always told, you know, you need to make sure you've got a pension. It sounds like you two had both done. You'd taken that on board. and You'd put a bit aside and and all of that. Yes. But the cost of your retirement that people talk about all the time, the cost of dying or getting seriously terminally ill people just don't talk about it no they don't talk about it and that's the thing that people are frightened to talk about because they don't want to have to think about that somebody they love's going to die you know we were together for 38 years so you know in all that time you think that you're going to grow old together and see your grandchildren grow up that's the sad part so he's never going to see her grow up he's never going to see our daughter get married or things or and you don't think about all of that. And you know, in the beginning, I, all I thought was naively of me that, um, you know, he would have his chemo and everything would be fine. And it wasn't until um, one of the last appointments that we had with the consultant after he'd had his only six months chemotherapy when she said that they couldn't cure it, they could only try and control yeah. it. And that was a real kick in the teeth because I thought, oh, I thought, oh no, it'll be fine. Everything's fine. It never happens to you. Everything's going to be okay, and and it wasn't going to be. And then I thought, well, that's fine. That's fine. He'll go in. They'll be able to drain his body, take the fluid out, give him a transfusion every so often, and he would be fine. That's what I was thinking. But naively, that's yeah. never happened. And. It's really you tough, know, Audrey. You, you, Lots of people listening to this will, will have will have experienced very similar things. Just find it. How are you doing now? I mean, obviously having lost Eddie is one thing, but going bankrupt in the process. Yes. How are, how are things doing now? Yeah, I mean, obviously it lasts for a year. My wages is is help. I work thirty hours a week, so at least I've got that, and I work for the NHS. So you know, our wages is not too bad. And um, but it's still a struggle. Mm. I mean, I don't have a lot left over for luxuries treat. Yeah. Yes, because we didn't own our own house. We rent our house, so privately rented. So that's a big chunk out of my wages every mm. month. But, you know, you, you, you just try to to cope, really, because yeah. you, you have to. And my daughter and my granddaughter live with us, so at least it means I've got them. Yeah. So they've been a big, massive help, you know, a big, massive rock. We've helped each other cope with the grief and... That's been terrible because you don't realise just how hard it is to lose somebody you love. Even though it's been seven months, it's still hard. I I, I was off work for about four months after Eddie died and just trying to cope with the situation and every day, you know, you you, you still think they're going to come through the door and... You, you know, you, you hear their voices on videos and things, you know, that you've taken and it, that's hard. You know, little things just start you off crying, you know. You can be okay for a couple of weeks and then you hear something and that that's what makes you cry. That was Audrey Buckham there. I really appreciate her speaking to me uh, yesterday to share her story. Uh, joining us now, Mark Whitaker is, uh, is on the line. Morning, Mark. Morning. Uh, Mark, tell us about the situation you're in. Uh, your wife, Cheryl, uh, has got a terminal diagnosis of uh, cancer. Um, just Correct. talk us through, tell us about Cheryl, first of all, and the the, the, the process that you've been through and, and, and whether what, what Audrey was saying there sort of rings true with your experience. Well, yeah, Audrey's ditto our experience, apart from I haven't had the loss of my wife yet. <clears throat> um, 
Cheryl's 61 now, and uh, she's worked all her life. Um, started from the Army Service, where we both met in 1979, and we were married in 1980. So obviously we've been together a long, long time. Yeah. Now, when we had the two young children, Cheryl worked any job she could find. Um, she'd worked at packing companies, frozen pizza places, well, you name it, all the social hours work she did. Um, and then she got some managerial positions, which she did for the rest of her life. Um, and then in 2018, after a series of other medical issues, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Absolute shock. Couldn't believe it. Um, so from the problems that we had prior, I, I took on a retirement from the environment agency. So I got to show off. Uh, we sold our house because we couldn't afford the mortgage. And then we had to claim universal credit. And that was when our life really started to change. Um, Cheryl rang up to make a claim, and they wouldn't let a claim on her own. They said, you have to claim as a household. So that meant then I had to make a claim on universal credit. And basically from that claim, all the money we get awarded comes out of my work pension. So in essence, even though Cheryl's paid her own insurance contributions, they take my income and my career's allowance and deduct it in full from our universal award, which means it leaves me and Cheryl for a month £179 from universal credit. That is when we've paid all our life, all our national insurance contributions and all our income tax, you know, and it's been devastating. As much as the cancer diagnosis, to be honest with you, well, that's, that's the thing, that, that money worries are bad enough on their own. But that Correct. being the sort of the second thing on the list, while you're also dealing with, you know, Cheryl's treatments and and the knowledge that, that, she's, that her diagnosis is terminal. So tell us about, when I spoke to Audrey, because I spoke to her quite a while yesterday afternoon, she was talking about, you know, putting everything on credit cards, but everyone knows, you know, that's a short-term fix which causes long-term problems. That's something that you, you've had, ended up doing. Oh, yes. Um, well, I tried to retain my credit cards because obviously, you know, you, you live in hope that your position will change. Now, if the Marie Curie campaign works, obviously that would change our financial situation. So currently, I use both my credit cards, both nearly up to the limit. So we need them paying maximum you know, interest on both credit cards. Yeah. So I've got £3,000 on one credit card. 2800 on another credit card, and I'm also £2,000 overdrawn at the bank. Now, if I was to go to the banks and say, listen, can you sort me out? My credit rating would be kiboshed. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd lose the credit rating. Now, because we're in rented accommodation, and we are both classed as you know, benefit claimants, when I try to rent somewhere more suitable, because currently we're in a second floor flat with no lift, now, part of Charlotte's conditions is that she's got muscle wasted, yeah. bone issues, neuropathy, neuropathy. So where we live now is not suitable for Cheryl. So I tried to rent somewhere to help, and this was a housing association. And they said, you don't meet the affordability test. Now, bear in mind, I've been paying £725 for rented accommodation for five years, never missed a payment, you know, but yet we're classed as... Yeah, you know? and and that really stresses and upsets me. 
Yeah, no, of course. And how how are you, how are you? I mean, clearly Cheryl's going through it with the the treatment over the Mark. But how are you doing? Trying to juggle all of that, presumably trying to shield Cheryl from some of the worry of all of that as best as you can as well. How are you coping? What effect does all this have on you? Oh, I'm devastated. No, I'm a different person than I was, you know, five years ago, obviously. Um, and, it, and in fact, Cheryl's the one trying to keep me going. You know, I mean, when you think about it, you know, they pay thousands and thousands of pounds to keep Cheryl alive. But yet they pay nothing for her to live on. You know, it's, it's just ironic. It's just ridiculous. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's what she's entitled to. And having that state pension early, bearing in mind she's already paid into that system, you know, would make a huge difference. It would give us financial independence, but no. And also, it would give Shell her identity back. So at the moment, Shell's got no identity. She's just classed as a member of the household. You know, and that is wrong. You know, we should have a dignity in our life at 60s. But it's gone. And so if you, um, there's a, as you mentioned, the, the Maui Kiori campaign is is sort of up and running now, and there's this, this petition that people have signed. If you could speak to, I don't know, whether it was a government minister or Rishi Sunak, what would you say to the Prime Minister about the situation you're in? I think one of the really striking things, both you and Audrey were talking, you're both living in rented accommodation. Because again, you know, cancer doesn't take any notice of whether or not you've owned your own house or you've got, I don't know, rich relatives who can help you out or or whatever. It, it's completely indiscriminate. Um, and so that effect, suddenly when something like this happens through no fault of your own, you don't have anything to fall, fall back on. So what, what would you say to, to Rishi Sunak if he was listening? Well, if you look at the... DWP, how it was set up when Ian Duncan Smith brought it into fruition in 2010. Um, no matter what your circumstances are, Universal Credit don't look at that. They just look at one single payment they think you could live on. Forgetting that, you know, we've had a working life of 30, 40 years, mm. and we've had all the credit cards, we've had the cars. So our lifestyle are going from £70,000 a year income to zero income, you know, I've still got my old life to sort out and pay off. You know, that, that's not taken into account. So I tell Rishi, when the DWT speaks to people, first of all, speak to them as people, you know, human beings. I mean, there's no compassion to the DWT whatsoever, you know. They don't take Shell's cancer as anything major. You know, they still ask her to perform duties like go to this meeting, ring into that, ring mm. into that. If you don't do it, you get punished. So why is DWP operating on a punishment basis rather than a compassionate basis? Well, Mark, it's really good to speak to you. We really, really appreciate you sharing your 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 story. Uh, just wish you and Cheryl all the best of luck and hope that, that you know, by shining, shining a light on this, that something something might change for you and people like you in your situation. Um, Mark, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, and best of luck to you and Cheryl. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's Mark uh, Whitaker. there. We have had a statement in from the Department for Work and Pensions. A spokesperson saying, a terminal diagnosis is an unmanageable challenge and our priority is providing people with financial support quickly and compassionately. Those nearing the end of their lives can get fast-track access to a range of benefits without needing a face-to-face -face assessment or waiting period, with the majority receiving the highest rate of those benefits. The statement goes on, in 2022, we extended that support so that thousands more people nearing end of life will be able to access these benefits earlier through special benefit rules. This change has already been implemented for employment and support allowance and universal credit, and the government has recently passed an act which enables similar changes to personal independence payment, disability living allowance and attendance allowance. But I think as we've heard from Mark and from uh, from Audrey there, I mean, it's clear that the, the, the situation is still incredibly difficult. And any one of us could probably find ourselves in that 
in that um, situation. Well, let's find out what more could be done uh, on uh, on this situation. Let's turn now to Baroness Finlay, crossbench peer, chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Dying Well, and a member of the newly launched Times Health Commission, which is going to sort of rethink every aspect of uh, the health service. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Really appreciate your time today. You're also a professor of palliative care as well, so great to get your perspective on this. What difference would it make to people who do find themselves in this situation, living with a terminal illness or somebody who is terminally ill, and all the impact that has emotionally and financially? What difference would it make if they were able to draw down their state pension, do you think? Just before I address that, Matt, can I just make sure that people are clear that the new special rules for end of life haven't yet come into implementation. That will be after February, hopefully March. But that's been an important change because previously under the special rules, people had to be deemed to have a prognosis of six months. Well, we all know you cannot predict how long someone's going to live. That's just impossible. So the under the new rules, there's the ability that if a doctor or uh, or a specialist nurse or social worker think somebody probably will die in the next 12 months. Under the special rules, all the five benefits are all rolled up into one and they should be processed fast. And that should take some pressure off people. But I think it's really important too that people have open conversations early. Now, the other aspect of the new payments is that if and one hopes that they do they live longer than the year then actually the payments won't stop at the end of the year they'll have a grace period and then a very light touch assessment at three years so hopefully we will see a lot more people able to claim the support they need for a lot longer and avoid this cliff edge that we've heard about and that's a really good point. So that refers to the changes that the DWP were talking about, that they have basically they've passed the law, but it hasn't actually started happening on the ground for, yeah. for real people in real situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that will be enough? Does it need to be more than that, this idea of, of being able to claim your state pension early as well? I think that the, the sad reality is that no money can take away the stress and the awfulness of finding that you're dying young and dying early. And of course, we've heard from people who are near the, in their 60s, so they're nearing the end of their working life. Sadly, there are people much younger who are dying of, of illnesses, um, some in their 20s, some in their 30s, leaving small children and so on. So I, I really hope that the new rules will take some of that pressure off everybody. But having those difficult conversations is something that we all need to do. Mm. And I think when people are ill, those the doctors, nurses and everyone looking after them need to have really open, early conversations and listen to what people say is happening. Because with all the stories that we're hearing, it seems as if people felt that they were very much on their own and then suddenly their world collapsed. I thought the really striking thing from what Mark was saying was we, we as, a, as a state, as a country, as a national health, have spent so much money keeping people alive. One of the, the huge benefits of the last 20, 30, 40 years is the improvement in treatment and care and cancer that used to be a death sentence now isn't. People can go on to live 
far, far longer than expected. So we spend a huge amount of money on that, and yet the individual themselves ends up spending the last years of their lives often in, in terrible financial hardship and the, the, the knock-on emotional impact of that as well. Yeah, I, th I think, though, we need to put that a little bit in perspective and be really glad that we live in a country oh, where yes. we have yeah, an yeah. NHS that pays for all that. Because if you're in some other places like America, you know, you might you might get nothing. And even if you've got insurance for some people that runs out. So uh, that I'm, I'm not saying it, it's great, but it is less awful than it is in some other places and the new treatments are fantastic because people are now able to live well for much longer with what previously as you said Matt was a death sentence and uh, yeah well we look forward let's let, let's let's um, keep in touch and we'll no doubt um re return to this as an issue we've we've covered a lot before about the role of hospitals and and so on as well it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the uh, out of the health commission but for now Baroness Finlay thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio this morning Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Um, massive thanks to Mark uh, Jackson from Marie Curie as well, and particularly to Audrey and Mark for sharing their stories. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 